Quick note before we start, the film we're discussing today, Own Worst Enemy, is now included with Amazon Prime. So if you're a subscriber, you can watch it there for free. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about making movies from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're talking about Own Worst Enemy, a 2012 low-budget indie comedy directed by the husband and wife team of Michael and Jessica Judd. Those of you who may be interested in seeing Own Worst Enemy, either before or after you listen to the podcast, it's available online. Go to ownworstenemy.net and see which distribution path works best for you. That's ownworstenemy, one word, dot N-E-T. I didn't work on this project, but my guests today did. First, we've got the directors, Mike and Jessica Judd. Mike, Jesse, welcome to Below the Line. Hello. Thanks for having us. Hey, Skid. Hey, guys. Mike, let's start with you. You've been on the show before, and you're currently an assistant director on Young Sheldon. So what were you doing back in 2012 when Own Worst Enemy was coming together? Uh, in 2012, I was the uh, second AD on Desperate Housewives, um, and we had a two-month hiatus coming up uh, before starting the eighth season of that, and, and I was going to be bumping up to first AD. So I had a two-month window approaching, and Jess and I talked it out and decided this is the perfect time to, to make a movie. Oh, that's interesting, Mike, and what's, we're going to revisit that. But Jesse, for you first, the same questions. What are you doing now, and what were you doing during the production of Own Worst Enemy? Okay, well, now I um, started my own publishing company called Wicked Tree Press, and so I'm, I'm a writer. So I'm writing comic books, novellas, and novels. I'm also still screenwriting, which is what I was doing back in 2012, as well as working in nonprofit with young people. And I, can take, I could take the time off work. So he had a hiatus and it was one of those perfect moments to do something like that. So. Oh, thanks, Jesse. Mm -hmm. And in our fourth chair today is Jennifer Kelsey, the lead actress of Own Worst Enemy. Jen, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Jen, tell us a little about where Own Worst Enemy fits into your career. Um, well, when I met Mike, um, I was a PA and I was doing extra work and just really doing the Los Angeles hustle. Um, and then we had a mutual friend who was a PA also, and uh, he facilitated an introduction between us, uh, knowing my career goals to be an actress and knowing uh, Mike's upcoming passion project. He thought we might be a good fit. I had done and did after um, other small projects as an actor, like many good experiences. Um, yeah, I just never really took off. Uh, so... Currently, I might be in a bit of a career shift at this time. Um, I've been doing more props and food styling for still TV and film. Um, I have an art background, and I'm shifting more that way. Um, not that I would turn down another role. I'm just not really hustling for it at this time. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm kind of moving more the art direction. My art Instagram is Jen Kelsey Art. If you want to go there, there's my plug. Uh, but yeah. Well, happy to, hopefully some folks will go check that out. Well, thanks to all of you for being here today. So let's take a step back and talk about the movie itself. I think let's start at a high level, uh, Mike or Jesse, if one of you wants to offer, or I don't know, maybe you guys have a routine on this. Tell us a little about what the plot of the story, Own Worst Enemy. Um, well, Own Worst Enemy is about a um, kind of failing inventor 
Um, and he's finally made it, he's kind of obsessed with this other inventor who takes credit for, see, he thinks takes credit for all of his ideas. Um, and in, and all his ideas are kind of sharper image, goofy ideas, like the dentomatic, something for your teeth. And, um, meanwhile, he has invented a time machine just to go back and get credit for his other inventions. And when he does finally invent it successfully, he doesn't even he doesn't even appreciate that he invented a time machine. And so he goes back in time and he keeps kind of making things worse. And meanwhile, the role that Jen plays, um, Layla discovers the time machine and he's been making her miserable for seven years because he only, he's so fixated on this vengeance to this other guy. So she finds the time machine and she goes back in time to stop herself from falling in love with him. And then, you know, hijinks ensue. And in the meantime, kind of re-falls in love with the younger version of him. Yeah, and uh and realizes there's no hope (laughs) sorry well um you know they say they write what you know guys but i can't imagine that uh this is a story you guys are drawing from your own experience well the story comes from originally your writing partner right dan and you came up with this idea yeah i mean the original idea you know um the, the story got started i think back in 2005 it had been it had been brewed brewing for a while my my writing partner college roommate and good friend dan Preddy and i were throwing back and forth ideas um and then the initial thing one of the initial ideas that stuck was the idea of this guy who invents a time machine and instead of using it to you know do something good for the world um you know stop some tragedy or or something or or even for any decent personal um gain um, just uses it out of spite, just to uh, you know get revenge on a uh, on an enemy, um, and we thought there was some humor in that. So um, yeah, we went back and forth via email um, with the synopsis, and it, it grew and grew, and then we started writing the script, um, and then the script, you know, we finished a version of it. It sat on a shelf for quite a while, um, and then there was there was actually a, a contest at my my university for a, a short, they do a short film competition every year. So I said, yeah, maybe that would make a, a decent short if I could distill it down to 20 pages. And so got it out, uh, you know, got the script out, um, edited it down. And, um, and that kind of, kind of got it going again with that story, just kind of taking our, our concept, which maybe we didn't. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's all true. Um, but what I think happened is we started talking about, and then what started happening is we talked about, I'm a writer too. I've written with Mike. He writes with Dan. I have a writing partner and we have a lot of scripts and which one we could make for the smallest amount of money. And I always loved the idea of this script and came back to it. I was like that idea of using a time machine. We love time travel movies, using a time machine just to, you know, deal with your bitterness, you know, and your anger and your rage at some person who doesn't maybe even know you exist. Um, we thought, I, I found that really intriguing. And so then we started developing it to do a low budget movie. This might be a good time to acknowledge that none of you were technically below the line crew on this movie. Mike and Jesse, you're producing and co-directing and Jen, you're the lead actress, but that line is a little blurry on an independent production. Let's talk a little bit about low budget filmmaking in general and specifically how that affected own worst enemy. Yeah, um, we kind of had built up over the years um, a sort of um, small film collective in a sense. Um, One of our friends back in, I guess, 2004, 2005, 
who was a writer, wanted to make his own indie movie. And, and we said we'd help out. So I actually DP'd it. Jesse produced it. Um, you know, we shot it, you know, it was a micro budget film and, um, the lead, um, the lead actor in that, this guy, Chris Cashman kind of saw what we were doing and became inspired and said, well, you know, I want to make my own movie. Um, and along with his friend, Darren Lice, who was our, um, DP unknown worst enemy. So Darren had come to our set and then those guys kind of said, well, man, this is, you know, this is doable. We can do our thing. And so it led to a film called Carts about a group of shopping cart attendants at a Costco uh, that Chris wrote and directed and, and Darren DP'd. Mm-hmm. And then he brought us aboard to produce. Um, and so that kind of collective kind of kept and, spilling over. And the over. thing about, you know, like I think with low budget film, that's really important because you talked about above the line and below the line is that, you know, you need to have a group of core people who are really passionate about making indie film and passionate about your project because they're going to have to do like three or four of the crew jobs. I mean, you're not going to get through an indie film and say, oh, I was just the producer or the director. You'll at some point have driven a truck, you'll have catered, you'll have done a location scout, you'll have made a prop, you'll have put makeup on somebody, you brought your own costumes. So, I mean, and, you know, maybe Jen can probably speak to what it, what it is to be an actor in this situation and what your role, how your role is different you know, an indie film than in a bigger film. Well, Owner's Enemy was a unique experience in that um, for being a smaller budget film, it was so professional and seemingly organized and the quality was really good. Um, A knowledgeable and dedicated crew, like you said, um, and you were able to come up with great equipment as well. So that makes a huge difference in production value. But this was probably the best in terms of that, and everyone got to have their dream position in a way. It's like, what do you want to do in a, in a film? That's you. Okay, you got it. You're props. You're the producer. You're the director. Like, it was fantastic. Being teamwork-oriented myself already, I really, I really enjoyed working on this. I could be the actress, but then, you know, it was hard. I wanted to restrain myself from overstepping my bounds too much is like, oh, we should have this prop or, you know, I've got costumes I can contribute here. You know, it was all welcome. But um, yeah, I really like that environment of being able to. And your dog was all in, in. It. And my dog was in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, <laughs> I assisted oh. casting in that way too. And was oh, an yeah. animal handler. <laughs> you were also the animal handler uh, yes. throughout the film. Uh, so what other hats did you guys have to wear thinking of this blurring between above the line and below the line roles? Well, you know, the, the first couple, we, we, there's another couple involved, um, uh, Darren Lice and Crystal Rowe, who we got involved early on. And again, they came from the film Carts. Um, Darren was our DP. Crystal was a producer on this. Um, and they're the first two we got involved and said, you know, here's what we'd like to do. We'd like to get you guys involved. Um, they were on board. And Crystal did a lot of the, uh, digital, um, like work on props, like magazines and everything, like a lot of the graphic design, um, and general, like in the marketing and everything, Mm -hmm. which was really great. Um, but just having them as passionate, you know, just they, it allowed us to have, you know, a really professional office to do casting. So it's not at your house. Um, you know, we were able to use, get props from them through their work a little bit. Right. Or did I just make that up? So hard to remember. every little. Yeah. Detail. It's hard to remember who brought what at this I, point. Yeah. And so I think, but for hats, you know, 
um, both on carts and in own worst enemy, you know, you're not just the producer. I mean, a lot of times you're, you know, filling in for the role that someone couldn't make that day. Like you end up being the second AD, you end up being a PA, you end up being a set dresser, you end up dealing with catering because something fell through, you know, so there's a lot of different roles that you end up playing. Um, it kind of starts life. with, ca you know, casting director, casting you know, you're director. putting out yeah, you're notices casting for director. casting. Um, you know, we're holding auditions. We're not, we're not watching the videotapes that some casting directors made. We are in the room and Darren and Crystal were with us as well. Yeah. Do you remember when I auditioned that I had come from a car accident? Oh my God, that's true. I forgot about that. That's crazy. Yeah. So as far as auditions, yeah, most of them happened at Crystal's building where she worked. But Jen, you actually came to our house because we knew you a little bit. And so you were more comfortable doing that. And I remember on my way to your house, I was um, on the freeway and this lady merged right into me and we swiped cars and ran into the side of the wall and we got out and there was no major, major damage. Um, it was all cosmetic and I just looked at it and looked at her and this is how committed I was to you. It was like, I have an audition, I gotta go. And <laughs> I called you and said, I'm going to be like 10 minutes late and yeah, headed over. And maybe that improved my performance, just the nervousness, the, like the, <laughs> the fragility of me arriving. <laughs> I do remember that was an intense audition. And I think what sold us on you was, um, you know, there's the scene Keaton brandishes a gun and in the film, he, he points it at you briefly. But I remember in the audition, you actually took the gun and like held it up to your head or put it in your mouth or something. It got so intense. And I was just like, man, she's, she's going for it. She is amped this thing up. <laughs> well, we don't want to uh, encourage aspiring actors to get themselves into car accidents before they go to auditions. But Jen, I'm glad that uh, broke in your favor. Yeah, it worked out. I, as a director, there with Jen, there was a lot of times when I really appreciated her attitude because do you remember when you had to jump out of the time travel door and you're like basically naked and we're trying to have you land safely on the ground, keep the towel or keep the blanket around you. Mm -hmm. It was cold. And I was just like trying to be so sensitive and get the shot. All the guys were trying to be really respectful. And I mean, do you remember, how did you feel during that scene? I mean, because I just thought you were just playing it like a champ in general. Yeah, I try and um, yeah, just be confident in situations like that. Okay, okay, this is the job. Let's go. And I don't, I'm not really... I don't embarrass that easily. Yeah. And nudity doesn't bother me that much. Sometimes, sometimes sexuality, I have a hard time taking seriously. Like this is ridiculous. Like being all romantic and there's 10 people staring at you. Like this isn't real. But it's like hard, yeah. the naked falling around, that, that's somehow natural to me. <laughs> that's normal. <laughs> and I do remember also enjoying in and out of the dumpster outside, half naked, mostly naked as well. <laughs> <laughs> but I see the... The comedy in that so that doesn't bother me i i rather enjoy it <laughs> i also remember with you uh, i think it was our last day of filming at the wine store the wine bar and we had a, a fake wine that didn't quite look the right color and and you were like is anyone here um really concerned about drinking real wine at this point <laughs> like just give me a glass of wine <laughs> It's like, well, I don't want to presume that you're going to drink this real wine and perform. You're like, just yeah. give me the glass of wine. I'm yeah. so committed. <laughs> I'll take one, take one for the team. <laughs> Did the budget allow for a decent bottle of wine? 
Well, we were right in, we were in 55 degree. Um, there's that store in Atwater, like they have a downstairs um, thing. Yeah, I guess we didn't really, but we took it out of our personal budget. Well, and also um, the, the, it's changed hands with the owner at the time, Andy, um, let us film there for free. He was, you know, we lived in the neighborhood and he was great. Yeah. And so I think buying a couple bottles of wine um, offset the, some of the production yeah. costs. <laughs> I think what I always thought was kind of interesting was to watch Mike have to direct a low budget movie with me and he's an AD. And we did have a lot of ADs help us out, but um, to watch him having to switch between those roles because being an assistant director is creative, yes, but you are really trying to keep everything going. You know, that's you have to. We've scheduled it. You have to stay on schedule. You, but you know, sometimes you're going. Come on, we got to get to the next thing. We got to get to the next thing. But when you're the director, sometimes you have to stay in the moment and not worry about the next thing. And I think that is an interesting balancing act that. Um, you had to do as an AD. I mean, I'm a writer, so it's a little different, but um, yeah. Yeah, you writers have no sense of time. Yeah, we have no sense of time, so we're a good team that way. We just fight about it later. <laughs> well, coming in as an AD, yeah, you definitely get the perspective of, um, you know, where, where the what the day holds in store. And, and even when I work with directors now as an AD, it's like, you know, you can, I know like, if we take too much time on the scene earlier in the day that, you know, I've scheduled in a way that we can make up time on the back end. So we can kind of, you know, pull from, from scenes that are coming up. So you have a better sense of that. And we didn't have any time to pull from for later. So if you didn't do it, it was probably not going to happen. <laughs> so that's a little different. Well, to the point you guys are making, I've spoken with other ADs who have, for example, gotten their opportunity to direct an episode of the show. <clears throat> and pretty universally, they talk about having to set aside their AD hat and focus on the creative, what's really called for the director, that if they try to AD their own shoot, they end up missing some of the things that they want to do creatively. But I imagine that's really difficult if you're wearing both hats. And so, Mike, were you playing the role of first AD on set or you actually had other ADs there and it was just a matter of your sensibilities kind of going back and forth. Yeah, it was more of the sensibilities. I mean, I, in prep, I kind of prepped it as an AD. You know, I, I, before we got going, I, I put out a one-line schedule just to get a sense of how many days this was going to take us and how to budget it. Um, and then on set, you know, we, and with many departments actually, because a lot of people were volunteering their time and wanted to help out, you know, we had um, people that would come in and help us run the set you know, but if, you know, if they couldn't make it that day, someone else would come in. And there are a few days where we had no legitimate AD on set, but for the most part, we are, a lot of the days were contained one location with a couple of casts. So, you know, as long as we had the shot list, we could keep going and forge ahead. Yeah. And we're lucky in that we have a lot of AD friends. So people who are volunteering happen to be ADs, which is helpful. <laughs> I mean, that's doesn't everyone doesn't have that I don't think so that that was helpful to keep everything going smoothly that is well that and that speaks to I think a lot of low budget filmmaking is people don't understand the importance of that um, and how much you know if you put into prep that goes a long way in your shoot days and you can really schedule yourself into nightmare shoot days where that just aren't makeable yeah and I want to talk about um, Ricky Manzi and Ismael um, they did a, they're both, um, I don't, are they producers on the movie? They were, they had different roles, but they really got into the props and making, um, all these weird inventions with us and really helping us with set design. And I felt like 
that their contribution really was all over the place. I mean, they did mm-hmm. almost every role possible and they're at that time were both production production assistants, right? And they're just excited to do it. And yeah, Rick really- Monzi and uh, Ismael Jimenez are now um, uh, both great second ADs um, that were working with me on Desperate Housewives as well. And, you know, Ricky kind of forged ahead as the prop master on this. Yeah. Um, and uh, built a lot of our funky props. Um, Ismail was uh, was credited as production designer, and they both have associate producer credits. But um, you know, he built the time travel door. He he found a lot of the set dressing. Um, he would and, just show up with something. Look at this, you guys! And he's like, "I'm going to turn it into this amazing thing." And it was a lot of fun. And also, you know, and we can get into this in a bit. But our main kind of space we filmed was this weird um, storefront slash, I don't know, speakeasy storage studio studio space, turned yeah. into a studio space and you know that became keaton's workshop in the present and we turned it around to keaton's workshop in the past and then turned it around again to nickel's workshop around to the key shop and yeah the front half was the key shop was the diner was the uh inventors anonymous yeah building it was so. a lot of our sets a lot of our locations <laughs> Well, let me take a step back. When you guys talked about the shooting, I know, Mike, you shared with me before that you guys shot for around 13 days. Was it 13 days back to back or there's a spread out over the two months? How did this come together just from a planning perspective? Um, it was, uh, I just looked at the schedule before we got started. We we did a, I think we started on a Tuesday. We did Tuesday through Saturday. So it was a five day five days in a row. We had a Sunday off and then we shot Monday through Saturday, six days. Um, and then had Sunday off and then came back to finish off the last couple of days. Um, the general scope of it was we had to get the, uh, our quote unquote stage space, um, ready. So the first couple of days were actually at our old house. Um, and this is where, you know, coming down to this kind of family feeling of <laughs> filmmaking, we were shooting a scene in video villages in our living room and our, 18 month old daughter, Eva, who appears as the crying baby, crying toddler in the, in the script, you know, was not feeling well that day. So we're holding her at video village, passing her back and forth, thinking the crew must think we're nuts. She got sick, so she couldn't go to daycare, but we had everyone coming to our house and we didn't really know that till the morning of. So the first day we had to, yeah, we were trading her back and forth and everyone was coming together for the first time. And so that was a little, that was a little intense. (laughs) She was a scene stealer. Yeah, she was a little bit of a scene. She was a scene stealer in that the crying baby worked out. She's method. She was method for sure. <laughs> but yeah, there are things that come up in low budget filmmaking, like, you know, because of the hours and, you know, us having an 18 month old after we got a couple days in, I just called my mom up and I said, mom, we're flying you out here. You got to help watch Eva while we make this movie. So I got my mom on a flight and, and grandma came to the rescue to help us with our baby. Yeah, that's true. We thought having an 18 month old was the perfect time that we should make our feature film. So that's a tip for, for young <laughs> have filmmakers. A, have a baby make and your then movie. make a movie. It's yeah. the best time. So when you guys talked about the crew coming in, about how many folks did you have on set from a crew perspective? We had about eight to 10 um, people. Uh, you know, Darren was our DP camera operator um we had a a gentleman named juan garcia who was our you know dolly grip slash everything else camera assistant he 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 worked you know with darren mostly 
Um, Tammy Eldridge was a set costumer on Desperate Housewives and she was our costume designer on this. Um, so she, you know, managed to have access to some of the Desperate Housewives costume um, supply for us. Um, we had uh, we had a couple different script supervisors. Our initial one, Katie, who we'd worked with many times, um, had to leave for a, a better gig, better paying gig, I guess. Um, and so one of our PAs bumped up to script supervisor. Um, and then you know uh, there was there was a lot of crew members that would make it when they could. So we we had people that would you know show up for a day or two and. Um, you know, um, some of the other consistent ones, Gina Rylander. Um, so here was Gina was Eva Longoria's makeup assistant on Desperate Housewives. She found out we were making a movie and she said, Oh, I'd love to do it. I'm like, Gina, like, I can't, you know, this is so low budget. I can't really pay you much. She goes, no, I don't want to get paid. I just want to, you know, I'm not, I, it'll be fun. So she came out, volunteered for us and was great. And, um, uh, Lydia Fantini was um, someone that had been recommended. She was trying to um, start her career as a hairstylist. And this is one of her first film projects. And since then, she's, uh, she's, been, she's been working nonstop. I ran into her recently, and she's been doing well. And this is one of her first projects. That, that's been one of the fun parts on both of the uh, low-budget movies that we worked on during that time period. A lot of the people who were just getting started are now, like, really successful at you know, they're the roles that they were playing on our films, which was nice. Now, Jen, you referenced earlier the idea that things on this set, um, good equipment, professional crew, other thoughts about how this might have been different from other projects or specific memories about how it came together? At times it seemed chaotic, but I think that's what's special about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I think everyone was vibing, everyone was on a hustle. It, I think it was just a really special project, special memories. I just rewatched it, and it's fun when you rewatch something that you work on. You can just remember each shooting day independently, even like, oh, I remember this day I asked for a bologna sandwich for breakfast. And I'm like, well, why would I? Oh, that sounds terrible now. <laughs> but I'm kind of curious, you know, because it was a time travel movie, and, you know, you had read the script and everything, but, and we were shooting so quickly. I mean, one day you're like, the first day I think was pretty, in I mean, how did you feel that first day of shooting? Because it was kind of like a very intense scene right off the bat, I think. You guys were doing your, you were doing the older Layla goes back to seduce younger Keaton. Wasn't that the first day? No, I think the first no, day that we wasn't did the first day? was Keaton comes back to apologize and oh, she's in that's bed right. and he brings her the donuts. It actually didn't make it. Oh yeah, the oh, that didn't make it until we had some lighting. There was some lighting or something. I can't remember. <laughs> I think it just didn't fit in. Yeah, it didn't. It oh, yeah, it didn't fit in. Yeah. So speaking of the time travel shenanigans, there are a lot of scenes in the movie where an older version of the character is interacting with a younger version of the character. I'd like to hear more about what that was like, both uh, Jen, from your perspective, as far as acting against yourself, and also just the logistics and challenges of setting up these scenes. Uh, acting against myself was a first, and it and it was really fun. Um, I like those scenes a lot. I just rewatched it and those are my favorite scenes. Um, so in that process, I think Mike was standing by and he would read the lines like a casting director would maybe in an audition, right? So he would read the other half of my lines and then um, I would then have to respond and act towards my double 
um, the girl, I can't remember her name. Skylar. Skylar was my Skylar. daughter. Gina's, Gina's daughter, her makeup artist's daughter. Yeah. Um, so then I would act to her and then, um, and that's interesting because you know how, you know how you're going to act or respond to yourself in one character. Then you have to imagine how you just received it. It's a bit schizophrenic. Um, I think in those scenes I memorized and acted out both roles of the scene when I prepared for it and then remembered to only execute the part we were filming at a time. So then I wasn't like mouthing my response or something. <laughs> Does that make sense? I can um, imagine that being a challenge, right? And I guess at a, at a larger level then, so are you, this is, I guess, suppose a question of whether you have more of a delay redoing someone's makeup to be in the other role or whether you're shooting different locations or trying to, run all of someone's scenes in one version of their makeup before going back and forth. What really took priority from a planning perspective? Typically what we would do is start with one version's coverage. They're like close up and the over the shoulder of a double to their close up and then fall back to our kind of split screen 50, 50 shot and clean up that look and then keep the camera locked off and they'd go change into the different costume, come back, we'd complete the 50-50 uh, the split screen and then turn around onto that, that new looks coverage over the photo double. So that's kind of um, how we did it. Um, and Jen, uh, you know, her character, we, I think we had more planned in initial scripts and just for budgetary reasons, we ended up, it got trimmed out of the... Well, a lot of Jen's scenes in the original script were a lot bigger, like, more comedic, like these comedic big scenes, and we just financially could not pull them off the way that we wanted to. So we did. You did lose a few scenes, unfortunately, because <laughs> um, or, or they were toned down a little bit just mm -hmm. for the nature of the the beast that was the shoot. Um, and then when we did, uh, you know, we had a, several doubles in the finale scene. I don't want to get into it too much, but we had the two inventors. Um, so we had. John Maddie was the actor and we had Mike Lutz. Mm -hmm. And so they were acting against their younger selves, but in a room all together. And that sequence to me was one of the most intense because one, we had to write it in the first place. Like that was a finale scene that took a while to figure out um, when I finally started writing with Dan and Mike um, near the end. And once we got it figured out, then just in the middle of all of this, you know, getting this production going, we come to the scene and it's like, you have to do the shot list, you know, and make sure it's perfect. Because if you don't, a day like that is going to be pretty horrific for everybody. Um, and I think even though it's still our longest day, it was really great to, one, I was really glad I was working with an AD director. <laughs> and also Vale was there, who's also a very good good at organizing and just I was the actors were so great and you too Jen just acting against yourself coming really prepared being really believable in those moments I actually think all three of the actors who had to act against themselves brought a whole lot to the production value just with their insights and the way that they played it um, and so I was really ultimately we rewatched the film too and I was really proud of the double scenes in general I thought that 
they um, came off really well. And I think it was a credit to the actors, a lot, a big part of it and just the planning too. So. Yeah, it's, it's hard with those, um, especially for the audience to, to keep people separated and who's who. Yeah. So we took a lot of care with um, both the Tammy and, and the cast uh, oh, yeah, with Tammy close selection. Gina, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, the, the older, more bitter Keaton wears a lot of grays and blues. His scenes were lit differently. It's a colder, bluer look. Whereas the younger, more idealistic Keaton wears more reds and, and, and like more earthy tones, warmer stuff. Um, the lighting's much warmer. And then as the, as the film goes on and, and those two worlds kind of come together, um, some of those things, some of those elements start to, to come together as well. And even in the camera work, the, the, the older Keaton is more handheld, whereas the other one is more um, on, on dolly or, yeah. or uh, tripod. And, and as the, you know, um, so the different looks for both costumes, hair, makeup, um, and lighting for those different characters. It's also something we'd done before. So we uh, had done a um, couple, we'd done a music video um, a few years before that we had um, characters acting against themselves with photo doubles. So it's something we, we'd kind of pulled off at a smaller scale before. So we were a little bit used to the process and even we did a little spec commercial um, where we did a little split screen, uh, doubling work. So I guess it's something that we've, I may have done one in college too. Maybe we're obsessed with yeah. having people play it's, against it's each also, other. It's also a way to, to have like a really full cast with yeah. only a yeah, handful of vectors. <laughs> <laughs> now I know that, um, a lot of Jen's work, um, and Jen, some of the work against yourself, like you had to get into a wig and, uh, very different costuming and just a, a completely different look. What, so what's the turnaround on something like that? Like that's a long time for the crew at an indie film to be sitting around. Uh, they, I think they really made it work. I feel like we made those switches in maybe 30 minutes. Maybe my memory is off, but we didn't really have the time or the luxury. You know, they might schedule it, schedule another scene in between if we were lucky, I think. Um, but they would sort of um, plan the makeup um, just so that that transfer would be easier, you know, like, Oh, just a little heavier eye here and throw the wig on. And let's go. You know, it was, <laughs> it was fast. It was gorilla style changing just quick. I don't need a dressing room. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably a good lead in to go back to the issue of low budget filmmaking in general, to be able to get the kind of production value that you're looking for. What other sort of uh, secrets or tricks did you have to use to, to help bring this together? I mean, with like with low budget, one of the most important things, if I'm going to give advice to anyone about low budget filmmaking, is to make sure that you have a core group of people that are going to do the main roles in the crew that, you know, above that are very passionate about the project. Um, also, like when you're interviewing people, because we do, you know, you post these jobs and you interview for your crew. And if you have an interview with someone and you're like, oh, the price is right, but there's something about them that is, is reading wrong to you. You know, you don't want to make the mistake of choosing to save the money over hiring and hiring someone that is going to be a toxic in one way or another. Because like at a normal job, that will, you know, they're going to be there for a little time and it'll spread itself out. But in 13 days, you have one person on set who 
isn't doing their job or is complaining all the time or is not willing to step out of their comfort zone, um, it's going to be really detrimental to your experience, you know, and I've seen it happen. And so I do think one of the most important things is not, is listen to your gut in those interviews, listen to your gut when you're casting. Um, don't, that's not a time to make, to save money, you know, to, just cause you can't find the person who, um, is the right per hour rate. Um, you don't want to go with someone who's not gonna, I mean, it's better not to have a person almost, if that makes sense. Um, that's one thing I, we learned both not the easy way, but not on this film. So, <laughs> um, and then I don't know, that's one of my pieces of advice just in the initial beginning. And, and I think being very prepared, um, take as long as you can on the script because you really, it's doesn't cost you any money to fix it while you're writing. And you know, you learn that lesson every time you make a project. Cause when you rewatch your project, if you're a writer and a director, there's always something where you're like, oh, we, you know, you, it doesn't matter what project it is. There's always something that you would have liked to do different. But you can save a lot of money in writing. You know, pre-production saves you a lot of money in production. So that's where we would look for ways to save money is the script. And it's important to do that first and not try to figure it out day seven while you're there. The other thing is we're, we're very... Um... DIY kind of hands-on. I mean, we, um, you know, we edited in our breakfast nook, um, the film, but you have to kind of know your limitations and know when to reach out. You know, yeah. we, we, um, found a recommendation for, um, our, uh, post sound mixer, um, Ray, who did a wonderful job. Um, just not only just mixing what we had, but also bringing other elements of, you know, footsteps and, and, eerie sounds and the sounds of the door and all this. Um, and then also we had a professional, um, colorist do the, the color timing, which was a recommendation from someone I knew. And, and that just really just adds so much more. It's something, those are the type of things that some people are good at and can do at their, on their home computer or whatever, but it just was kind of outside of our reach. And so and we, we reached out for help on those. Yeah. And then with music, um, Julia Holter did the score and it was her first score, but she's a uh, professional, um, electronica kind of avant. I mean, it's her music's kind of avant-garde. I don't know, but it's, she's pretty. You can check her out. Um, and I think she's now composing some projects. Um, I think she did a Martin Scorsese project, and uh, she was working with me at the time. And you know, I talked to her about doing it, and she was like, "Yeah." And I think that her music brought a lot to it. And so, yeah, if we spent a little extra on getting some music that was real quality, you know, instead of trying to do that ourselves because that would have been bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe you could have done it. I know. No. no. <laughs> Speaking of crew and cast, what sort of union agreements did you have in place? Uh, we did do a SAG uh, low-budget agreement. I'm not sure what they, they called it at the time or still call it, but um, I mean, pretty much every actor in the town is a part of the Screen Actors Guild, unless they're fresh off the bus from Iowa or something. Um, and it, it, we were working with a lot, a lot of the cast were our friends or folks that we'd worked with in the past, Carl Ramsey, Laura Mancini, um, you know, so, and Mike Lutz was a friend of ours. So it, I mean, it would have been, you know, there's a lot of initial work that goes into setting up uh, being a signatory of, of Screen Actors Guild, but you know, it would have been much more frustrating to try to do a non-union SAG casting session. We'd have probably gone nuts trying to do it, so. yeah. And what about on the DGA side? I know 
since then, in more recent times, I've heard stories of there being extremely low budget DGA deals, similar to what SAG has been doing for years and years. But I don't recall that they were fully in place that long ago, but you would know better. I think we we researched that a lot. And part of the problem is, is we're directing partners. And um, wasn't that part of the problem? Yeah, the DGA is not real fond of the directing duo. Um, and um, just looking forward in my own career, working on TV and wanting to direct episodes of that, it was going to create more problems looking ahead than I felt it was worth. Cut to a letter comes to my inbox from the guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that even on that front, I think um, there's been some changes in the direction that what the guild tolerates as far as that, because I am seeing a lot more of those joint credits, both on movies and even occasionally on TV as well. So it's interesting to see how all the unions are sort of adapting um, to this new environment where it's much easier, particularly, I think, even since you've done your film, for folks to do um, independent productions. But um, but part of that is the equipment getting much cheaper. And I think that you guys were faced with uh, rather expensive equipment back in 2012 for pulling something like this together. Yeah, I mean, we shot, um, you know, this was a DSLR, you know, this was our, Darren had a, I think a Canon 5D and he had a, a camera package. Um, I asked him to put together a list of grip equipment, lighting equipment that he wanted and took it to the best boys that I was working with at the time in the grip electric world. And surprisingly, like our electrician department, you know, they took the list and I was expecting maybe to get a few things off of it. And they gave me the entire package and I picked it up. This was after our, our show had wrapped. So, and as I was leaving the lot in the pickup truck, the security guard stopped me and said, where are you going with this equipment? And I was like, I had no answer for him. And I took a moment and he goes, are you making returns? And I was like, yes, I'm making returns. I'm returning this gear, which I'm clearly leaving the lot and it's all labeled with the lot logo on it. So then I get really nervous and, and called one of the electricians and she said, don't worry about it. We, you know, you're a filmmaking brother. We'll, we'll, you're fine. We know the people at the loading dock and it's easier to beg forgiveness and just go make your movie. So we, we made the movie and then the equipment sat in my garage until we started the, the season back up and I sent a, uh, had a steak bed come pick it up to get back on the lot. So... So no more questions from the security guards. <laughs> I hope you don't you don't anger them for telling them that story. <laughs> you know they tell stories of Spielberg sneaking on the lot That's from the true. tram, That's and true. and no one's asking him to pay back his tram fee or anything. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about some more about the commitment you had from the various actors to the project. Again, you've talked about the challenges. It's obviously can be a difficult environment working at the low budget at that pace not all of the regular crew, but you have a lot of folks that are equally as committed and it shows up on the screen as far as the work they're doing. Well, and I'll say that most of the cast that we worked with, we knew, um, we'd worked with in the past, or we knew personally, except for John Maddy, who was our lead, who played James Keaton. Um, we'd put out an ad, um, a casting call for that and, and had a bunch of people read. And just do you remember any of, of that? Uh, process oh i remember that yes yeah i mean no i we had a lot of really great people read for um for the part um there's just something about john you know just his demeanor his attitude um that just filled made me think right away that he was the right choice for that role um just i like not only did i like his performance um or his audition 
I liked how his, just the way he was, you know, as a person and it ended up being the right choice because when you're doing a 13 day shoot, you want to make sure you have an actor who's willing to actors who are willing to really get into the role and not just kind of, I mean, it's, it's hard to act against yourself. And especially with John and Jen, they had to, their hours were a lot, you know, longer. They had to do a lot of performance back and forth. And I mean, I think it was a lot to ask and I think they did a great job, both of them. Um, and I thought the other actors did a great job as well. But, um, and there wasn't much rehearsal time. Yeah, um, Jen, do you want to talk? I remember calling both of you <laughs> yeah. the day before we started and saying, I'm s- I apologize. We didn't really have much, if any rehearsal and <laughs> let me know if there's any questions, but we start filming tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did end up, um, getting together and we went through the whole script um and we we rehearsed that climax scene um that really like heightened confrontational scene at the end um together but uh yeah we just sunk our teeth in and did our best really um just you just sort of like get into that energy and that flow of like, okay, here we go. And then, you know, we, yeah, just had to trust our instincts. I think a lot of the time, cause it was like, all right, we, we got this in two takes. Let's go. <laughs> so you just try and give what you can and hopefully they like it. Yeah. And I, you know, with the actors who we worked with on this, um, on the show, I appreciated the times when they, you know, you were talking, Jen, about having to hold back sometimes when you had to jump into another job. I appreciated when they held back, but there was times when you guys gave notes and gave advice um, that were actually very thoughtful and brought a lot to the scene. And I liked that, you know, we had those kind of people that you could have that relationship with and have a creative discussion with on the set and make things better, you know. Um, and there was, I can think of a couple moments like that. I remember, you know, just things were going too fast or the pacing or, you know, there was a, it was great to be able to have those kind of dialogue, to have those dialogues with you guys. So. Now I want to talk about one of the smaller roles in the film. Uh, Jesse, you play a woman who's in her house and interrupted by a time traveler coming through. What exactly is going on there? (laughs) Well, I, I'm not an actress and, uh, I was so tired um, and I was going to do a cameo. And so my idea was to put green face, like a green mask on my face and be like, I was, you know, in my spa mode and um, then I would get interrupted that way. Um, I do drop the only F-bomb in the movie, which um, I'm sure my children will like when they watch it at one point. (laughs) Um, I enjoyed it. I was really nervous, to be honest. I'm not usually, the last time I was in front of the camera, I guess besides, no, I mean, we did a few little things, but it was like a someone's student film in college. So it was a little bit intimidating, but I watched it and I, I, it cracks me up pretty much every time. (laughs) I love that scene. (laughs) Did you guys, (laughs) any disagreement in the casting room about which of you was going to play that part? Mike, you could have done that as well, I think, with the green makeup. Well, he- <laughs> yeah, I have, I have a little non-speaking role. Um, but um, it's, also, it's also funny to see, you know, the, I think everyone on the crew is, is, uh, works background. And at one point, I think um, several people you can see in different, different roles. Or, you know, I think um, 
I think like Rick Monzi is both outside and inside the diner <laughs> facing different directions. So stuff like that. I mean, it was, you know, anyone passing by on the street got pulled into to acting in this yeah. as a in, in background or and like small my, parts. Yeah. My best friend from high school is the homeless man, which I'm, I enjoy watching every single time too. <laughs> no, we didn't argue about that one. He was all about me doing that scene. In the bathroom. <laughs> The thing we argued about, we didn't argue about, but we had trouble figuring out where to place that scene. Um, there was a few location things like that. Um, yeah. You know, you know, we we filmed at our house, we filmed at a couple other friends' houses or apartments, and we had the studio space, which serviced a bunch of them, a bunch of the scripts. But there were also times uh, we started production without having a bookshop location, which was kind of a central location. And that was Dark Delicacies were really, they were really great. They just let us shoot there. And a lot of wonderful things happened around that, that location, you know, because then Ishmael just happened to have a friend who lived down the street so we could do base camp down there. Um, and the owners of that shop are wonderful and really open to independent creators in general, not just of comics and books, but you know, the film and everything. Yeah. And so sometimes it, it, you know, with projects like this, you just have to get lucky because we, yeah. we finally found a location with a reasonable cost attached. And, um, but it was, you know, it was out in Burbank. We didn't know anyone out there. And, and we asked around, yeah. does anybody know anyone that lives around this that we can just pull up and have lunch and get people ready? And Ismail goes, yeah, my friend lives there. And he, he, the kid literally lived right outside the back door of this bookshop, was which random. was crazy. And, uh, you know, it, we ended up filming in the, in the, in the guy's house as well and saved us a location move later on. So just happy accidents that happened along the way. So since own worst enemy, to what degree have any of you been involved in additional low budget productions? Um, I mean, right after that wrapped, um, you know, I helped out Darren, our DP shot a, a, a little pilot uh, or like a web pilot. Um, so again, paying it forward with the, uh, our little film community helped him out there. And we've just been uh, kind of writing in the time since. We're actually, now that our, our girls are a little bit older and they're interested in, in creating and filmmaking, we're, we're, we're planning a little um, small film with them as, uh, as cast and co-producers. We're, we're shooting a film over the Thanksgiving break. We'll see how it comes out. <laughs> and then we are prepping to do a TV pilot um, um, more in like the kind of black mirror vein. Um, so I've written a couple of short stories that I'm going to turn into scripts and we're going to do those. One of them for sure. Jen, how about you? Um, yeah, I've uh, worked on a couple independent, again, like a few uh, web pilots as well um, or web series even. Um, but yeah, this was, by far the most professional all around, I think. Like they really knocked it out for their resources, absolutely. And how do you guys feel between 2012 and now, what may have changed in low budget filmmaking or what principles are exactly the same? Well, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of access to, to being able to make these things. Um, for, I mean, this, this wasn't even a low budget. This was, you know, micro budget. Um, you know, now there's, uh, I mean, just the cell phone videos, yeah, uh, you know, are people are making feature films on iPhones and stuff like that. So just the access to, to gear that 
allows you to do this is a little bit easier. There's also a lot more streaming platforms that allow you to get it out to the masses, which um, just in the last few years has increased quite a bit. And one of the other things, and this is about filmmaking and in any creative endeavor, um, you know, it takes so much effort to write it, it takes so much effort to produce it, but then you're not done once you've produced it. I mean, you have to be the champion of your work. Um, no one is going to, you know, there's so many things to watch and consume out there. You really have to, you know, you have to, you have to push it out there. You have to get the word out. There's so much publicity and social media and everything. And, and no one's going to do that for you. you. There's so much work after the, after the thing is filmed, after it's produced that, I mean, it's just, just as much work after the fact, if not before of just, you know, getting it out to the world and, and having people see what you've done. Not to, not to discourage anyone, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that there's a high percentage of independent films that stay in the camera and never get edited. And, you know, so it's, there is this long post-production, then marketing, then film festivals, you know, just to get people to see it um, and actually view the film. So it is important to keep that in mind. Pace yourself. So do you have any interest in doing a reboot seven years later, a time travel <laughs> <laughs> update. <laughs> Where are they now? Yeah, yeah. Like they're, they're, they're supposed to be happy, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Jen. Right. Oh, yeah. There, there are scenes where I'm like, oh, I, I wish I could redo that or I would play that so different now just yeah. with different life experiences. And yeah, so that, that's always interesting. I don't know if you feel that way. You know, yeah, I mean, it, it is hard to look back at your work and, and after some time has passed and, and, you know, see what you would have done differently. But, you know, you got to be proud yeah. of it and forge ahead. I, you know? I mean, that's the whole thing about being a writer or a director or an actor. I mean, that's the interesting thing about film is that you put it on the screen and it's there forever. Um, you know, with writing, it's like you have to choose to stop because you could just keep writing it again and again. And when I watch it, I rewrite it every time you know but it's you can't you can't do it i mean it would be interesting to see it with a bigger budget you know but i i mean i wouldn't change this particular film yeah the one thing i, I would say um in regards to that of not knowing when to stop writing is uh, yeah, obviously this film and most low budget films and a lot of big budget films could uh you know would benefit from more more time with the script more time in prep um, but there is also something to be said about just, just doing it, you know, yeah. just getting it done. Don't think twice, just jump in, get it done and then have something to show for it. Because I, you know, we've had a few projects ourselves that we've, we've, we've talked to death talked where, to that where we don't even, you know, <laughs> they don't even get off the ground because we've overthought them too much. And, you know, if you just plunge ahead, do it, you know, you'll be, you'll be, you know, recording a podcast with Skid one yeah, day. Yeah, I guess. No, and on the <laughs> other side of that, because I worked in development a long time, um, is you can develop the soul out of a script, you know, the heart and soul out of it. And I remember watching lots of projects where I'd come out of a meeting and I go, that this is the script that should get made. This is the script that's not going to get made because they all just came up with a bunch of notes and it's going to be rewritten eight more times and it's not going to be what made it it's not going to be the script that people bought and the reason that they bought it, you know, it's going to be this uh, watered down version of it. So you can overwrite things and overthink things. So I agree with that. Just do it. 
Well, it's clear that you guys are happy, uh, not only with uh, the effort and the team that came together with the project, but with the final product. And I think it's worth uh, for folks to check out. I will posit, however, that you could very easily write a sequel where folks go back in time to the original movie and you can reshoot those scenes. It worked for the Terminator franchise, and I think there's no reason if you get a whole bunch of new views after the podcast comes out that you guys shouldn't uh, start plotting that sequel. You know, and uh, we'll talk about it here on Below the Line when it comes together. <laughs> Great. Sounds good. Thanks, Thank guys, you. for joining me today. This is a lot of fun. Thank, Thank you, Skid. Yeah. Bye. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If so inclined, please take a moment and leave us five stars and a comment on iTunes. Fan of the show? Check out our Facebook page at Podcast Below the Line. For Twitter and Instagram, you can find us at Pod Below the Line. If you've got feedback, send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-C. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music, and thanks to John Juan for the logo. You can get the logo on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers. Just go to redbubble.com and search for Below the Line. Next episode, we're talking about the long-running TV series 24, and all of my guests were crew for all of the original eight seasons. They got a ton of fun stories. Join us again in two weeks. Um, well, the first people we got involved. Um, <coughs> oh, shoot, Mike. Sorry. Yeah. I think I'm yeah. coughing on you, but then uh, I think the other one was coughing or chair moving on the last thing that I said. So maybe I'll say that again. And we'll <coughs> okay. If that's okay. Oh, that was that. I didn't see because I was reading. Was that you, Mike? Did you cough? I'm on? not going to fess up to anything. I know. That's what <laughs> We're not recording video, so there's no. We problem. already went back in time and fixed it. <laughs> I'm not even a thing anymore. <laughs> okay, let me try it again. <laughs>